Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today, I'm about to have a conversation that I am really, really looking forward to because we have Allie Felker here, and she's not only agreed to, but champions um, open dialogue around one of the most taboo topics that I can think of in our society, and that is the loss of a child. Um, you can find her at AliFelker.com. She has a blog there about her experiences and she has resources that help other women that have been through this sort of loss. And then she also hosts a podcast called The Morning Dove. That's morning as in grief, which is so cool. And that's at her IG at Morning Dove Pod. So hello, Ali Felker. Hi, thank you so much for this opportunity to come on here and and talk about this. It means a lot. Yeah, it means a lot to me too, because you had written me an email and sometimes I don't know how to navigate because people will write me these, these terribly tragic stories or really heartfelt messages. And every once in a while, I'm like, that's something I would love to talk about on the pod, but you never know how amenable people will be to having an experiencing like that, or like just openly talking about their experiences. But then I saw you had already been openly talking about this. So you are also right now pregnant 25 weeks, you said 23, but yeah, currently, yeah. Pregnant after loss, which is Anybody who's gone through this knows it's a crazy journey. Yeah. We're excited. And I want to get into all of it. And your first child you lost at what age? He was 32 weeks gestation. So um, he, I was not full term, but I was considered a late term or a late stillbirth. Um, So he was, uh, you know, past the stage of, viability and um it was a full-blown baby Mm, okay yeah so Ali just so everyone knows has given me permission to ask any sort of question that comes up yeah and I appreciate that because I like asking all the ignorant questions uh that we might all be afraid to ask obviously especially or only when I have someone that is open to that kind of conversation so a trigger warning obviously off the top for anyone who doesn't want to dive into this sort of material but I also think it would be so valuable to stay and hear us out on this one because trauma loss grief and death are all subjects that, you know, I don't know what it's like in other countries or cultures, but in with Americans in particular, I feel like 
it's taboo to even like bring up to my parents that I want them to write their will ahead of time. I had my parents like divvy up their house and take pictures of the things and say where they wanted it to go. Cause I'm like, don't leave me to fight with my three siblings, please. And do not leave me the task of trying to sort through your financials. It's going to be hard enough. And it's just interesting to realize that those conversations are hard to have because we don't have them. Exactly. And that was the main catalyst for me starting the podcast was not only to provide an opportunity for people who have experienced loss to sort of have like that familiarity of, of listening to other stories, but also for people who have not really experienced loss to understand what the grief journey looks like. And granted, it's going to be totally different for, for different people, but I really feel passionate about normalizing grief because I think once people are more comfortable talking about it, then less harm will be done. Uh, People say things all the time that they're really genuinely trying to help and it's just not super helpful. And that doesn't come from a place of, you know, any, any kind of wrongdoing. It just comes from people, we don't talk about this. We're not educated. Oh, okay. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about that too, because I recently ran into a friend uh, who had gotten in this terrible accident when we were in our early Mm. 20s. And I remembered that I hadn't visited him in the hospital. And I know for me, it was because I was so overwhelmed with grief and with the trauma of it. And I had no idea what to say. I felt completely disempowered by the experience. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just so excited to hear what you've learned and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. So I think everyone will just be curious and like, if you're open, of course, um, I would love to just hear the story, the buildup, the excitement, finding out you were pregnant and, and the journey of loss. Yeah, absolutely. So I found out that I was pregnant in December of 2019. It was actually, that was pretty funny too. I was, um, we were on our way to be in an Airbnb with like five other couples and a bunch of kids on our way to Disneyland. And I was like, hey, I haven't started my period. I should probably, I was like, there's no way I'm pregnant, but I should take a test because if I'm not pregnant I want to drink survive a day at Disney I'm like how do you do that sober (laughs) exactly and um and if I am we're gonna have to figure out how I'm gonna fake it for this whole weekend (laughs) so right uh, so we were in in Albertson's bathroom (laughs) on our way and just like bought a pregnancy test fully like this is just I'm just being crazy there's no way And sure enough, I was pregnant and we were um, immediately excited. And what was really weird was as soon as um, we were literally like in line in Albertsons buying um, ice cream, because I was like, well, now I want ice cream. (laughs) And and I turned to my husband and I was like, I think it's a boy. I know that's crazy, but I think it's a boy. And so my pregnancy progressed. Sure enough, we found out that we were having a boy. We named him Henry, and uh, we still call him Hank, so sometimes I use those names, like, interchangeably. Hank is, like, his nickname, and 
my pregnancy was completely normal textbook pregnancy. All of our tests came back normal. He was growing completely wonderfully. His head was in the 90th percentile. And I was terrified of how it was going to push that out. <laughs> and I, you know, had a completely normal pregnancy. The only thing that stood out, and this doesn't have any correlation with um, his death, but I did have a low platelet count. Um, and that was the only thing that kind of stood out. So we were keeping an eye on that. On a Monday, I was working all day, um, doing a lot of like yard work, and went to bed. And on Tuesday morning at 4.30, I woke up and I turned to my husband and I was like, you know, I don't think I felt him move at all yesterday. And my doctor had told me, oh, you should do kick counts. Unfortunately, that was never really explained to me what that meant. Um, so I was just trying to kind of pay attention to movement. Um, and really quickly, so people know kick count is like when you're pregnant. And mm -hmm. sometimes, especially when the baby is larger, they'll stop moving as much because there's less space, but they'll still kick in certain increments or you'll feel them. So you're kind of making sure the movement is consistent, right? Exactly. And unfortunately, that, um, that concept of, oh, the baby runs out of room has made people kind of think, oh, well, that's why they're not moving. Even though they're bigger, they're still going to kick. So that's something that's super important to realize. And so the way you do like proper kick counts is you drink um, cold water and lay on your side and then make sure that you have at least 10 kicks in an hour. Okay. So yeah, that was never, I mean, my doctor was like, just do your kick counts. And I was like, okay. And I, <laughs> I don't say that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks. And I don't say that saying like, oh, if only I had done kick counts, this would have been different, but just more as a tool for prevention for people in the future. Well, yeah. And we can because talk that's, about your inevitable remorse or what ifs after. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, Woke up at 4.30, I was like, you know, I haven't felt him. Let me have a bowl of cereal. Sometimes if I have some sugar, he'll move. Uh, and I still hadn't, hadn't really felt him, but we actually downloaded, there's an app on your phone that you can like listen to the heartbeat. And so we did find his heartbeat and I was like, okay, that's good enough for me to go to bed. And the next morning I called the hospital and I said, I have not, I've had you know, decreased fetal movement, what should I do? And this was on a Tuesday morning, I had an appointment that Thursday. So there was a big part of me that said, should I even call because I'm going in in two days, I don't want to be a burden. <laughs> um, and they said, well, at this stage, we just send you straight to the hospital. And I was like, completely blown away, because in my mind, I still had like two more months. So I was like, I can't picture having a baby. We didn't have a car seat. We didn't have anything. So I uh, went to the ER and was sent straight up to labor and delivery. This was COVID times still. So this was last July. And I did a non-stress test that I failed. So 
The non-stress test, basically what they do is put two monitors on your belly. One is monitoring contractions and the other one is monitoring the baby's heart. And in that time, you also drink juice or cold water and you're supposed to press a button every time the baby moves. Well, he was not moving and his heart rate wasn't, it was there, but it wasn't increasing or decreasing. It was just kind of staying the same. So the nurses were really concerned. They were like, we don't like this. Um, but we're, we talked to your doctor and she wants you to have an ultrasound. How said, are you Great. feeling in this moment? I was actually, I was very reassured once I saw the heartbeat. And honestly, it never entered my brain that something bad would happen. I really, once I saw the heartbeat, I was like, he's probably fine. Um, and these nurses are overreacting. And I just still kind of had that feeling of like, I, I shouldn't be here. Like my, my, my problems aren't as bad because I'm perfectly healthy. And I have, I said that multiple times in my pregnancy. I'm young, I'm healthy. There's no reason why anything should go wrong. Mm. So I went downstairs, had an ultrasound where this, is something that I'm actually like currently trying to figure out um, also for prevention, not for any kind of retribution, but I was given an eight out of eight at that ultrasound. And I don't believe that that was correct because I watched the monitor and I never saw him move on the monitor. But again, his heartbeat was there and he was doing breathing movements and my amniotic fluid looked fine. So eight out of eight is like a measure of whether the baby is doing okay? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So it's like they score on these different things. Um, I'm pretty sure their baby's movement, the movement of the chest, doing like the breathing practicing and then amniotic fluid. So I know I was good on two of those, but I never saw him move. And this doc, this tech was like having me jump up and down and like do kind of weird stuff. And I was like, at this point, I honestly like, I, it, this is another what if, but I was kind of like, okay, I think he's fine. I want to go home. Uh, so I went back upstairs, talked to my doctor on FaceTime and she said, you know, I got the test back, everything looks great. She was really reassuring and she said, I think you're fine, like let's send you home and if anything changes, come back tomorrow, but otherwise I'll see you on Thursday. So I went home and still never felt him. And the next day we called our close friends. Um, one of them is like a, he is a paramedic firefighter and he was like, yeah, just go in just to be reassured. So it was always this feeling of I'm the one who's overreacting mm. and I need to be reassured it was sort of where my brain was at. And so I went back in and this time they took me up to labor and delivery, but they took me into like a delivery room, not into the non-stress test room. And I kind of thought that was strange. And I think they already knew, hey, if she's back, something's wrong. And 
that was when they put the monitor on me and could not find a heartbeat. Mm. And I was alone because of COVID, which was awful. Um, I couldn't bring my husband Drew up until it was confirmed. So I had to wait for them to bring in another ultrasound tech to confirm, or I think a doctor actually had to look at it and confirm that there was no heartbeat. And then I called my husband and he got up there really quick and um, we just completely lost it, like just wept. Uh, I remember feeling really bad because I knew that there were women in rooms really close to me that were having, you know, a moment of joy and I remember feeling like oh I I don't want to take away from their joy but I'm in hell like I am this is my worst this is every parent's worst nightmare so my doctor called me and she said okay what we want to do is start you on Pitocin mm. and I said yeah, yeah. like ha have delivery begin yeah, and honestly, like I, it was a, it was about thirty minutes after we had kind of processed that he was dead that I was like, I have to deliver him still. Like that didn't even really dawn on me. And it's it's interesting because it doesn't, people don't really realize like you still have a birth, like you still have a child, and most people feel very empowered by the birthing process. I felt that if I pursued a vaginal birth, it would be traumatizing for me. And I also, my doctor said, hey, just so you know, it can take up to two days before Pitocin works enough for you to, because I wasn't close. And also when the baby is gone, they don't help you through the process. Mm. So, yeah. So... I was just like, I can't, I can't do that. And so I chose to have a C-section. I'm glad that I made that decision. There's pros and cons. But for me, I think it, it saved both of us from a lot of unnecessary trauma. It's definitely not the decision that a lot of stillbirth moms make because they do feel that they get to have a birthing experience with their child, which is very like uh, bonding for them. But for me, I knew it was going to be too much. And I wasn't full term. So I had my C-section. It honestly was great. My recovery physically was, for me, it gave me um, sort of a weird distraction. And it also, I don't want this to sound super morbid, but it kind of gave me like the pain resonated with how I was feeling inside yeah like the the pain of the recovery was like cathartic in a way and uh we when you have a stillbirth or yeah when you have a stillbirth you are forced to make some really awful decisions really quickly and it's I have written like an entire stillbirth, like here's what to kind of expect. 
when this happens. And one of the things that I really want women to know is, should you be in this situation, you don't have to make any decisions quickly. And in the hospital, it will feel like you do. So you have to decide where your child will be buried or cremated or embalmed. And it's like, you never, you know, I was picking out nursery room colors. I wasn't picking out, you know, where I want my child to be cremated or what I want their memorial to look like. Like none of those things are decisions that parents should have to make quickly. So that's awful. There's also really beautiful things that you can do in the hospital. Um, there's uh, oftentimes hospitals will have um, photographers or at least nonprofits that do um, baby photos and they can come in and, and take photos of you and your child. That seems really scary. I didn't even know if I wanted to see my son, but the second they put him in my arms, I was head over heels in love with him. Like I feel that I experienced that maternal bond and love that every mom feels. And I explained it to my husband like, <sighs> after they took him away, I was like, I feel like a, a, a kid in high school who has like a high school crush. Like, you know, when you're so obsessed with someone and like all you can do is think about them and see their face in the back of their, your mind. Like, that's how I feel about my baby. Like I, he's my screensaver on my phone. Like it doesn't bring me sadness to see him. It brings me so much joy because that's my baby. And I'm go head over heels in love with him, even still. So, um, <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm crying more than you. <laughs> <laughs> I might cry later. So. You can cry, do whatever you can. Um, <laughs> I just don't want to be the one leading the crying. <laughs> it's okay. It's totally okay. I'm also oh. like, I don't, I don't cry in front of people. I'm weird just like that. Um, so yeah and then we you know had our our hospital experience I can go a little bit more into that but it was and then we went home and going home was surreal and weird and that was when we started kind of walking in this uncharted territory that no one is prepared for. I will say I was fortunate in that um, my husband's cousin, who we're really close to, they had also had a, a stillbirth um, three months before us. Mm. And I was able to connect with her really soon after her loss. And so after mine, we had like a two hour phone call and that was incredibly healing. And for both of us to just know that we're not alone in this and we've grown super close and we're also both pregnant at the same time. And so, no way. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been really, it's like horribly shitty. Like in, I would never want either of us to have to go through this, but it's very nice to not be alone. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. 
I have always just imagined so many conflicting emotions and that's exactly what you're describing. And it's, it's just interesting too, because I was labeled a geriatric pregnancy, which I feel y'all need to change the terminology. It's so ridiculous. Like as soon as you hit like 32 or something, you're a geriatric pregnancy. (laughs) there are I mean we can we can talk for days about how women's health care just needs to change in so many ways (laughs) but the terminal so if you have a loss before 20 weeks the medical term is spontaneous abortion and if you have a loss yeah and if you have a loss after 20 weeks the medical term is fetal demise Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's all horrible. Horrible. And the whole rebrand of the birth. Rebrand. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This, and even, you know, the term miscarriage, a friend of mine pointed this out. She's like, I didn't miscarry. I didn't, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Wow. And I was like, that's so true. You know, it's, we don't need to put the blame on women incompetent cervix my cervix is not incompetent (laughs) it's just short oh my god I'm gonna that's wow doesn't surprise me at all but when it's all listed in one big list I'm like wow (laughs) yeah it's a it's a problem (laughs) goodness gracious Yeah. So for me, I kind of had the opposite situation where I was worried Valentine was going to die every day. And Mm. I was always trying to like quell that fear and tap into peace and comfort. And I remember having an opposite experience as you too. And in, um, I went in at one point because he wasn't moving very much and, and some Mm. thought that came to me as well, was that I had lost my job and was able to get on Medi-Cal. But if I hadn't had lost my job out of my pregnancy, I would have owed an exorbitant amount of money every single time I go in. So one of my main thoughts was like, I can't believe we live in a world where if I had been in a different circumstance, I would have maybe hesitated to do this because of the financial issue. This is why... I vote the way that I do because women need to be so, so, so much better at taking care of in this journey because you should be able to go in the hospital and check in whether you're paranoid or hysterical, all the things that women are labeled, like we know, we know our bodies. And, but I also wanted to talk about like the, um, the remorse factors. Cause I can only mm-hmm. imagine because I think whenever I was going to the hospital to do what I felt like was doing too much, being paranoid mm-hmm. and, and checking in too often. Um, I just kept flipping it in reverse and being like, well, if I didn't and anything happened, what do I do in that scenario? So that was what propelled me to go to the hospital whenever I felt I wanted to. Um, but then you're also talking about how that you had this moment where you just wanted to go home. Did you have remorse for that? How was that process? Oh yeah. Um, and I do want to speak to something you had said earlier too, um, the maternal and fetal death mortality rate for black women, I believe is three times higher. Um, I'm not, it's, 
horrible. And also just, if not more, and access to care for people who are not privileged is um, terrible. So uh, I think that, and and also um, the stillbirth and maternal mortality rate went up during COVID 30%. Wow. Yeah. And there's lots of different speculation. Yeah. Less hesitant to go to the hospital or it felt more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, just one of the, it's, you know, there are consequences to a pandemic and there's some that are not seen so much and it's just awful. But yeah, to get into the remorse, I, as a person, have had to do a lot of therapy work in regards to just feeling guilty, not even just even just about my life in general. I've really struggled with feeling like enough and feeling like a good person. And I've worked through a lot just with my therapist. And honestly, Hank's death has put me in a better place through therapy in that regard. I felt a lot of guilt. I also will add that I, two weeks after his death, we found out that I had had a placental abruption. So my placenta had separated from my uterus in two places. And that was what caused him to not get enough oxygenated blood. And the day I found that out, I lost my mind. I was screaming inside and I was mad at God and I was mad at my body and I felt like it was my fault. And then I really started to go through all of the decisions that I made and the feelings that I had and just constantly feeling like, this was my fault. I could have prevented this. And that um, is something that I have really had to work through. And I'm very fortunate in that I have a partner who is incredibly loving and reassuring and has a good head on his shoulders. And whenever I was feeling that way, I would just tell him, I would say, I feel like this is my fault. And he would just affirm me and say, you made the best decisions with what we were handed. You know, you did what you thought was best given the situation that we were in. And also just given all of the reassurances that we had received, right. you know, from the doctors. And he was like, you're not a doctor. You, know, you can't know these things you shouldn't have to know these things. You know, the doctors are there to know what the risks are and make decisions based off of those risks. And I, it's not my responsibility to make those decisions. So that has been a journey. Yeah, because hindsight is the most difficult thing to reckon with because you always know what you should have done later Mm -hmm. oh my gosh but should have also is such a a convoluted and interesting thing too and I'd love to get into the spiritual element of it as well because I don't want to presume anything of the experience but even a desire like the to go home at that moment Mm -hmm. you know I don't know 
I wouldn't doubt any of these pieces having been your intuition or having been you sort of mentally preparing for something that you didn't know was going to happen. I don't know. I I wonder what kind of like, when you did start going into that healing process, if you did actually recognize anything that you thought you regretted, but then you realized had actually been the right choice or had actually somehow manifested and become a blessing later. Yeah, definitely. Um, even going into the hospital the first day, I feel like was my intuition kind of saying like, Hey, I think something's up. And I also really felt that by the time the ultrasound had been performed, let's just say they had said, hey, something, we just want to keep you from monitoring. And let's just say that they had done a C-section that night. I don't know what his life would have looked like. I don't know how much, how much oxygen he had lost at that point in time. So I think that is something that gives me peace. I also think that my intuition to have a C-section, while not everyone's choice, uh, that was something that I did feel that was very spot on in the moment. And even in just the grieving process, I've noticed that if I do lean into sort of that true self of what I'm feeling and processing through, I'm much better off than if I try to do things the way it feels like I should do them, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. That does. Um, what are, if, if it's not too personal between you and her, what are some of the more invigorating or interesting conversations or connected moments you've had with your friend? You said that conversation was incredibly healing in the aftermath. What kind of wisdom did you glean? What did you discuss? Honestly, we commiserated and that, yeah, (laughs) that is a big deal. I tell everyone, um, you know, if you can provide a listening, validating ear to someone who's grieving, honestly, all you have to say is this fucking sucks. Mm. Like that's, that's it. And, and no, you don't have to fix the situation. You don't have to find a silver lining. Like we just were together able to be like, this is awful. This is not fair. Didn't happen for a reason. And I felt really good in that space. So talking to her, she just was somebody who we could both share our birth stories with because people don't really like to hear the details of a birth story that doesn't end in life. But we feel exactly like any other mom, you know, this was an experience for us and we want to share it. So being able to share and commiserate was a big deal. Um, And also just being able to have somebody who was kind of three months ahead of me and also really inspired me to be gentle with myself Mm -hmm. and to just feel all the feelings and allow the grief to come in and be a part of me. And I don't see grief as 
a bad thing. I see grief, there's a quote that says, grief is just love with nowhere to go. And it says like it wells up in, the in your tears. That's just the love that you have for the person you lost. And so when I'm deep in grief or when I'm having like a breakdown, I just try to tell the grief, thank you for reminding me how much I love my son. Mm. And validating those feelings instead of trying to fight them has been also really helpful for me. Yeah. I know we have all these scripts in our head of what we should be doing. Yeah. And with that, I'd love to pivot to other people's reaction. Cause you just said that people don't want to hear these birth stories. And I think my question to that is, is that something we presume of others? Or do you think that people mm. are genuinely like ill-equipped or not willing to go there with these conversations? Yeah, so my experience has been more to the positive. I have a really good circle of friends who um, are I'm very close to. They've always been really validating. I can talk about, you know, Hank and my C-section and all these things, and it doesn't feel weird at all. Um, with I work in a salon, so I meet new people every day, and especially being pregnant, they ask one of the first questions is, oh, is this your first? And it feels very disingenuous for me to say yes. So I always say, no, I had a child. And if um, it feels right, I'll say, and unfortunately he was stillborn. So, and then I'll kind of put the ball in their court to see how it goes from there. Majority of people don't want to talk after that. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's probably because we're ill-equipped. Exactly. Like, what am I supposed to say? Did I mess yeah. up by bringing up that question? Does she? Oh yes. <laughs> and I feel so bad because I'm like, hey, and I try to tell them like, it's okay. I'm. Oh, thank you for you know saying that you're sorry. Thank you for asking. Like, it's not your fault. <laughs> you're not gonna make. Also, I think there's kind of this feeling like oh, shoot, I'm going to remind her. And it's like, no, this is a reality for me. I'm not going to be reminded. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh. That's actually yeah. a really interesting thought. Cause I think that's one of the worst feelings. Like, even if you're like, how's your boyfriend? And someone's like, we broke up. It's like, yes. you didn't remind them. They're fully aware. There's, it's probably something they're really still thinking about. There's something yes. comforting there for me, I guess, about the guilt factor of bringing up that subject. Yeah. And I think my best advice for people is to ask what you can ask. So just say, are you comfortable talking about this? Like, and do you can I ask that, his name? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's actually um, a leading question that that would be welcome in a grief space in general, like as a general rule to just offer yourself as a place for that conversation to happen. Like, even if, you know what I'm saying? Like, I like yes. saying, can I ask you about this? It's like, do grieving people want to be given that space? I mean, I can't speak for every grieving person, but for myself, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think especially for 
child loss because it's still so taboo, I think that that does open up an opportunity for someone to share in a situation that they may not normally be able to share. And I think the unfortunate thing is you do kind of have to take the lead of the grieving person and, you know, try to read the signals of, you know, whether or not it's, it's like flirting, like, are they into this or are they not? (laughs) (laughs) Morbid, morbid flirting. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, which I was terrible at, so. (laughs) (laughs) Especially post-quarantine. I don't think anyone even knows how to talk to anyone anymore. No. Let alone about grief. Yeah. Um, And there is something to be said about the fact that I think we're all kind of in a, I mean, this pandemic has brought about so much loss, not just death, but just so much. And I think that we're all just in such a weird space, which I think is now is the perfect time to have this conversation. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Everyone is pretty raw. I find when I run into people, it's no longer like, how are you doing? I'm okay. People are like, well, my cat died. My boyfriend left me. Like, you're just like, okay, I'm just trying to get groceries, but let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh um what are some of the more like what are some of the statements that you've heard from people or questions that you've gotten from people that gave you a sense of gratitude or or helped you to feel seen Mm. definitely asking about my son Mm. um what was his name what you know how how much had you prepared for him? Um, Even like, how old would he be now? Questions about him have been really validating because then it's like, okay, you're not ignoring. I feel very strongly that it's my job to memorial, like not just memorialize him, but also just to speak his name and to show that his life mattered. And so anyone who asks about him, that's really helpful. So I also think, because I feel like that would be the thing I would be most afraid to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because it's totally scary. And I, I, before losing him, would never ask someone what they named their son or any of these questions. Like, yeah. they wanted to to forget about it and not talk about it. I do. It's tough because in the space that I'm in, I'm around people who are more, or I communicate with people who are more like me, where they're more extroverted, they're more open. So I have yet to hear from anyone who doesn't want to talk about their children, but I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. I just, I've never talked to anyone who has had that experience. Um, so yeah, definitely talking about our, my son and also asking not just how are you doing, but how is your grief and how is your heart? I 
am also in a place where I was raised Christian, had a lot of the conservative Christian upbringing, and this has plunged me into a deconstruction that has been very good for my soul, but not um, fully accepted. I can't so. really. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would just be smooth sailing. sailing. <laughs> um, but I have had uh, friends and family members tell me, wherever you land, I love you. And like, I, you're accepted. And that has been really great too. Um, and in Greek too, like we change a lot. And so not to have that expectation that I'm going to be the same person that I was before Hank died. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. Cause you, you became a mother. Yeah. And motherhood will always change you. Yeah. Um, I am really curious to hear why this plummeted you into deconstruction because my deconstruction is this like I can pinpoint it and I feel most people can it's like oh it's because I was gay or uh, for me it was (laughs) because when my husband admitted that he had cheated on me it just like rocked my world so everyone I think has this little thing so it's interesting how did that happen for you what was it about the experience so I, for me, it came down to one phrase, and that was, everything happens for a reason. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So many people have told me that after I shared my story. And even if I just say like, oh, yes, well, last year, unfortunately, my son was stillborn. Well, it, you know, everything happens for a reason. No, it does not. <laughs> And honestly, it infuriated me for the longest time. And now I've come to a place of really having more acceptance and saying like, hey, this person really is just trying to help and they don't know what to say. And so there, and there are people out there who do feel comforted by that phrase. I don't know how. I don't don't know those people. I mean, maybe, but I think- My argument actually is it's, it's the only tool we've ever been given to deal with grief. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, my friend is Buddhist and she was telling me that when her aunt died of cancer, they actually went to a beach and like had her body on a pyre and, mm-hmm. and, and watched the cremation. And she was talking to me about the relationship that Buddhists have with death and and rebirth and how everything is a part of that nature and it keeps on flowing all the time and no one actually ever really dies and the energy stays and all of these beautiful things and I'm like well there's 17 conversations in that one story that I've never had with someone in my Christian faith it's like shove it down, give glory to God. The happier you become, the the faster and the sooner you become happy, the more aligned you are with your spirituality and the more aligned you are with like God's will or God's purpose for your life. But I, I've talked to so many people and have found that when true tragedy hits or you have any of these reckonings, none of those cliche sentiments help. And you're just left floundering. But I think, like I said, it's the only tool we've been given as these like 
grief silent Americans to be like, I get, I, I'll just say this. And it's like, yeah, not helping anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Again, why I started this podcast. Yeah. Um, and so what happened was I am, I call myself the resident loud mouth. So I decided to go on my uh, Instagram and just make a video about why I hate the phrase, everything happens for a reason. And in doing that, I still, I really wanted to target like a Christian audience. So I was like, you know, hey, look at John 10, 10. The, Jesus says, I've come to give life. The enemy is the one who seeks to kill and destroy. So it's like, obviously there's, you know, life giving. And then on the other side, there's death bringing. And if everything happens for a reason, how can you say that this death happened because of God's will that just doesn't like align but even in that I still was wrestling with the question of but if I believe God's in control and he's all-powerful why didn't he stop it from happening and so that was the, the catalyst for okay I need to answer those questions if I'm going to find any kind of place of peace and so in I actually read one of the books that you recommend the reading the bible again for the first time nice yes yeah and that you know just started to really open up my mind to say okay what are these things that i've been told that i have just swallowed and accepted as truth and they make no sense <laughs> and, <laughs> and i believe god is a a, a being that makes I don't think that, you know, I used to be okay with the phrase of like, oh, well, we're so small compared to God. His ways are higher than our ways. I'm like, no, that's not good enough anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just yeah. not enough for me. Yeah. Did you figure it out? All the uh, answers? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. <laughs> However, I do really resonate with this idea that we're meant to be the answers to our own prayers. So like I, if someone prays for healing, you know, what, how can they be healed? One, we can have a healthcare system that gives them access to good preventative care. Yeah. And those doctors can be compassionate and knowledgeable. You know, so I, I really think, you know, we're, we're meant to pursue a society where tragedies don't have to happen. Yeah. Especially and like they, you said in this disparity with people of color and poor people. Mm -hmm. like that, that's the thing too. That's why I'm such a vocal advocate of the way that I vote in a pro-choice mm -hmm. manner because pro-choice policy advocates for universal health care, for example. And the fact that conservative Christians will read their Bible about Jesus just doing almost nothing but going out and healing people all the time and, and act like we're supposed to obey and about capitalism over universal health care like this is the antithesis of what our our leader the one we're supposed to be emulating had told us to do yeah and in being pro-choice you end up being very pro-life <laughs> totally yeah well go into that i'd love to hear your description of that 
Well, yeah, that's something that I've really wrestled with um, is I feel that if I'm going to be pro-life, I need to be pro-all-life. And I also have someone very close to me who had a termination for medical reasons. Um, so I know what that looks like. And I know what pro-life in policy looks like in reality. And so I don't even know. It's like I consider myself pro-choice but anti-abortion. I don't think that abortion is great, but I think there's a lot of better ways that we can reduce abortions. And I must advocate for life. And that doesn't mean taking away options for women because that never helps anybody. Yeah. 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 It sounds like we have similar views and I don't know the answers to all the mysteries of the universe either, obviously, but um, I have come to a place in my life where first of all, I love the term. I don't know. Yeah. The best. And the more you're on this journey and the more you learn, the more you're like, oh my God, I don't know anything. Like I, I knew more. I thought I knew more about the world before I started God is Great three years ago. And now mm -hmm. I'm like, never mind. I don't know anything. And, um, but one thing I will say, like mark down the date, May 13th, 2021. I currently really believe we are on this planet to come closer to divinity and come closer mm -hmm. to love and who we're meant to be to emulate love on earth. And that all of these obstacles, shame, fear, pain, these traumas, the shame, the loss, all of it are just exercises in our spiritual growth. I don't think this mm -hmm. planet is meant to be Eden. It's not Eden. Like when we, we talk about a fallen world, a gray world, there are certain things that winds up being necessary evils like war, for example, it's like mm -hmm. world war two was a war that we fought with a lot of nobility for a really good cause. But then how much death came from that how many people suffered how many men got ptsd because they themselves had to go forth and take life even if it was for a good cause so there's really undeniable proof everywhere all around of us that this is a complicated world like mm -hmm. in that instance was war good or evil i would say it's both it's it's just a product of this mess that we're living in and the only way we're going to get out of these situations is by emulating love, unifying with our brothers and sisters, sharing our stories like this so people find community and people are able to heal because hurt people hurt people. And yeah. your output of the pain and shame that you felt could have manifested into more shame and pain either internally or externally, externally. Um, but you're taking the, you made the choice to begin this blog, to begin these conversations, to create community with the morning dove. And 
I mean, I just commend you so much and I don't know the answer to why this happened, but I do see you emulating love and healing. And also key point too, like I keep talking about how shame is like this external thing and it knocks on your door like a vampire. And Mm -hmm. it's like, can I come in? Because you were invited to shame to so many different instances, coulda, woulda, shoulda, if I had only all of these things. And it's the hardest thing in the entire world to do. It's the greatest challenge on in this planet. But I really think our call to further ascend into our spirituality is to reject shame, fear, and pain, like giving it to ourselves, giving it to other people. So I just say all of that tangentially to thank you and commend you for what you're doing, because this is certainly the first conversation I've had about stillbirth. And Mm. I really hope it only propels more people to confidently talk about grief and pain and loss and shame and how it does feel like it's our responsibility as mothers if something goes Mm -hmm. wrong even the medical terminology that you brought up is really stunning to me. Like geriatric pregnancy made me feel like I should be afraid all the time that something might Mm -hmm. go wrong. Cause otherwise why would they label it that, you know? And like you said, your friend pointing out miscarriage being a misnomer and or the other, they're all just horrible. They, they all (laughs) feel like they invite shame and yeah, I just commend you so much for doing the hard healing work of making sure that you, you're rejecting those things. But I will say, I'm sure this is a daily, if not hourly, if not by the minute process. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, really guarding my thoughts has been something that's an ongoing lesson. Also, you know, I haven't been perfect in this process either there's a lot of bitterness and anger and all these things like I'm not this like angel after having the loss but you know yeah but there's I, I'm just gonna push back and say there's nothing that lacks angel vibes about being in grief and a part yeah. of grief is rage and fury and anger and bitterness I mean I would be furious at the doctors like one of my main questions is like why was, why did no one notice or why couldn't they tell that the placenta had not been doing its job? Shouldn't they have picked up on that? And I mean, is there an answer to that? Yes and no. So um, this kind of goes into some of my hopes for future prenatal care. In, from what it seems like to me, everything's kind of for your first pregnancy, it's like, you keep doing you, and then if something goes wrong, then we'll, you know, treat it. And now being pregnant after loss, the amount of monitoring I'm receiving is so vastly different Wow. compared to before. Yeah, I'm in June, I'll start getting ultrasounds once a week. And there's a part of me that's like, why don't we just do this for everybody, you know? How many lives could be saved if we just had better prenatal care? And there's another aspect of this too, which is that, you know, you and I had very different experiences. Would you say that the fear you experienced 
had a severe negative impact on your pregnancy? No, I would, I guess I'm just thinking like it, it, it probably took joy out of certain moments. Mm. One of the things actually that I decided was I was not even pressured. It was just like a part of the journey of having a geriatric pregnancy because you're an old ass bitch and we can't believe you're having a baby so late in life. (laughs) (laughs) It's insane. Um, But I did get like overcare, like you're talking about, Mm. which I, I was grateful and cognizant of the whole time. I was like, you know what? everything is probably fine, but like, thank God I'm considered a high risk because I'm getting treated a lot better than other people. Yeah. And I knew that. Um, but they also, I can't remember the test, but they give you, um, a certain blood test that can predict whether or not the baby might have down syndrome or different like chromosomal mm-hmm. issues. And I rejected that because I've had false positives in my family and granted Mm -hmm. they didn't have the technology when I was a child, but my mom was said, was told that I was high risk for down syndrome. And it was just because my dad is 13 years older than my mom. So they were just presuming because his sperm was older, which by the way, I think he was only in his fifties or something that like, that was a high risk and she should consider not having a child. So we have wow <laughs> since then, but like, um, and then I had another person in my family who came out, you know, um, I, I don't use the word normal. There's nothing abnormal yeah. quote unquote about having a chromosomal difference, but, um, you know, she did not have Down syndrome, but she was predicted to as well. So anyway, all of that said, I was concerned that that kind of like family history would repeat itself because you can get a false positive. And then the, basically it was like, if you get a false positive or if you get a positive, the next step would be to take a big, huge needle, poke into my placenta, take a sample and, and then for sure, see if my baby has any chromosomal issues and that carries a risk of miscarriage. Yeah. So I just went down that lane and I was like, if I say yes to this and then I get a false positive or a positive in general, then I'll spend the rest of my pregnancy researching how to raise a child with Down syndrome. And I'll put all of my energy into that. And then it might not be the case at all. And I just didn't want to risk it. And then I knew for a fact, I wasn't going to let anyone put a needle in me and risk losing the baby because there are also rates of perfectly healthy babies, you know, dying due to this test. And I just want to clarify too, like I have really expanded my perception of, down syndrome. Um, So when I say perfectly healthy, I'm more referring to the other chromosomal disorders that come out that actually make life difficult or cut life really short for certain children. So, so yeah, I'm sure, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was the one thing that I felt it wasn't even a pressure. It was just like, this is the next thing you do. And that was the one moment in my process where I stopped and I was like, 
oh no, no, we are thinking through this because I'm not going to do that lightly. This isn't just a like off the cusp test I'm about to take. Yeah. So I asked that because, so one of the reasons why doctors don't, so, okay, let me back up. I feel like (laughs) our, (laughs) our prenatal care is fairly paternalistic. It's like, we know what's best. You just don't eat turkey, which is like not even a big deal, you know, and show up for these appointments. And that's that. I feel that there would be a lot less stillbirths if we actually educated women and empowered them to know the risk. And what I've heard from the medical community is that, oh, we don't want to unnecessarily put women in fear. And I just feel like knowing the risks and knowing what to do and being given that power and like being empowered is not being in fear. Education is always empowering. Always. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is something I talk about all the time. And and that's so diminishing too. That that feels like mm-hmm. a little pat on the head, like, oh honey, you can't take Don't it. Don't worry. Dude, we're fine. We're about to push this thing out of our vagina. We can handle a lot. Yes. We're fine. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's just something that I have felt in my own experience and also with other people who have had similar experiences. So Wow. Okay. So then there were your finding in your you know, anecdotal evidence with other people that there were things in the process that had been missed because of just not having enough care or enough attention on these certain Yeah. Issues. Yeah. And just one example, um, at 16 weeks, you can get an ultrasound that will measure your cervix. Um, they don't typically do that. Um, usually it's done at 20. And if you have incompetent cervix, um, which just means that your cervix is short, you can go into early labor Mm -hmm. at like 19, 20 weeks. However, if they catch it early, there's a surgery they can perform while you're pregnant that will prevent that from happening. So that's just one example of for this pregnancy, I went in at 16 weeks and I said, I want to have this ultrasound. And they did it because I'm high risk. And it's just one example of, hey, this is one little thing that we could do and how many, you know, not only how many babies would be saved, but how many families would not have to go through this trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, how are you feeling now? Um, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. In regards to this pregnancy, I'm in the second trimester, so I'm sort of in like a safety zone. I ended up switching doctors mid-pregnancy, and that was a really good decision to make. I hope that all women know you can you can drop your doctor anytime. And that wasn't I love. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really did love my OB. It was more of the care of the, the hospital setting that I was just not happy with. And I switched hospitals and everything. And that's been really, really helpful. 
because instead of being told, I don't think lightning is going to strike twice, which I was like, that's not what I want to hear right now. Instead, I was told, here's all the things we're going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. There you go. And nice. that was exactly what I needed. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm in a place where I feel very good and reassured about this baby. I also feel like I'm, you know, I, I grieve in a way that I have to do and talk. And so any opportunity where I can do something or talk, it's very healing for me. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine the, the, the array of emotions, especially just because you haven't hit the date yet where you Mm -hmm. lost Henry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're just going to go to the beach that day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it'll, what's my math? It'll be two years then? It'll just be one year, actually. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. December 2019. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, What else was I going to ask you? Oh, I just wanted to very quickly say to any Black women listening, anyone in general, but especially to Black women because of the lack of care and the horrendous way um, Black women are minimized or mistreated or not believed, please advocate for yourself. Know that there is always another option. I know you may have really limited resources financially, but still, I really believe you can find a diamond in a rough, even if you're in a rough hospital and, and find the person that's advocating for you. And don't be afraid to advocate for yourself the whole way through. We are told to be submissive in so many instances. We're told to trust doctors. And it, there's, an, it, there's a, a line to that where you can step over and be like, no, actually, I am hearing myself out on this one. I know exactly what I need. And I need someone on my team that sees me. You need to find care providers that are actually looking you in the eye and see you in these instances. I, for one, was at um, Kaiser in Los Angeles, which Mm -hmm. is fine. I had a pretty good experience, but I had tons of different doctors because they just give you whoever is available. And, um, and then there was one girl that rubbed me super the wrong way. And in my intake uh, papers, I was like, do not allow her in my room. Don't let her anywhere near me. I don't want her near me. And they were like, okay, God. (laughs) But you know, just little things like that to be like, don't, you know, you're a mama, you're a lioness. Do what you want in these situations. Do what you got to do. I could not agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Don't assume they have your back. Because also too, another thing that I was stunned by was like, just realizing that they are there every day. And mm-hmm. these, this could be the most traumatic event of your entire life. It could be the most celebrated moment of your entire life. But for them, a lot of times it's just another day at the office. So don't ever like overestimate the need to actually still make sure everyone's awake and paying attention to your needs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all we have to do is fix the American healthcare system. Exactly. Advocate for our black sisters and yeah, call it a day. Exactly. And then figure it's out no big deal. why God lets bad things happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
be able to just solve the mysteries of the universe <laughs> and the American healthcare system and everything will be fine. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this conversation. I couldn't be more grateful to have it. And um, thank you for empowering me to, to know how to speak to people that have been through trauma with more power, because I really didn't know what to say. I like, am I allowed to talk to you about this? Is this something you want to talk about? Would you like to tell yeah. me about your child or your loss and go from there? Yeah, I really do hope that people will feel empowered to speak to grief because it's scary. And also I want to say like, don't feel like you need to get it right because just trying and having empathy is all that it takes. Yeah. And before we go, do you want to give a little moment to Henry? Tell me oh. a little bit about him, your favorite things about him. I would love to. Now I'm going to cry. So when Henry was born, he came out looking exactly like his dad. And in every ultrasound, too, he looked exactly like his dad. And I was like, cool. Well, am I going to get any? Like, I did all the work. And then, um, when we got him, we took a peek at his feet and his feet looked exactly like mine. Mm. And that um, I've got really long, narrow feet and he had just these massive, like long, narrow feet. And that is something that I will treasure forever. Mm. Thank you. Do you feel his presence with you or do you feel like that's some, an energy that still stays with you? It is. And there's like special places around my house that I really feel him. And actually on Mother's Day, um, I went to, there's like a little spot in our yard where we have like a plaque. And I was like, I just want to spend some time with my babies. And I was able to really feel close and connected to him. Um, there's also like this bird that showed up in our yard right after he died. And I know that that was a gift because he just like shit all over our yard. And I was like, well, if Henry was with us, he'd be shitting all over the place. (laughs) We'd be happy to deal with that. (laughs) So every time I see this, like one species of bird, it's like just a little like, Hey mom, like I'm here. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing. Okay, everyone, it's www.alliefelker.com. I'll yeah. link everything below at Morning Dove Pod on Insta, at Ali Rose Felker on Insta. And um, I'm assuming you're open to DMs and conversations from other women. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or other people too. I mean, do you talk to partners of people who have lost babies as well? Um, I have not yet had that opportunity, but I'm absolutely open to it. And really anyone who has experienced any kind of grief, I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, I will put this out there. I would love to have a conversation with a person of color who is experiencing grief just existing. That would be something that would be really eye-opening for me. So, Okay. Thank you. Thank you for leaving yourself open for all of that. Yeah. 
Thank you for everyone who made it to the end of this conversation. I hope you feel more empowered to support those in your life that do suffer loss and trauma. And, um, and I hope you feel empowered to just walk through and feel and experience every bit of grief without needing to find some BS reason for the why. Just allow yourself to be a human being in this messy, messy, messy world. And that's it. We love you all so much. God bless.